Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol Jesus 911. One man car. My name is Jesse Romero. Hope you're having a happy, holy, blessed Advent. And I hope you're enjoying this Christmas season as I am. Lot to talk about today, the month of December, as we pass through the liturgical season of Advent into that of Christmas. Remember that Advent represents a time of preparation for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the liturgical colors representative of repentance and humility is violet, except, of course, on the third Sunday of Advent, which is known as Gaudate Sunday, when the color rose represents the joy of approaching the Christmas season. We also celebrated this month the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, who is, uh, by the way, the patron saint of the United States. We also celebrated the feast days of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the four apparitions. And now we're, we're uh, ramping up to the Christmas, uh, to Christmas Day in a few days from now, and the liturgical color will be white. The Catechism says, when the Church celebrates the Liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for His second coming. And in the book of Revelation, uh, John the Apostle writes about the second coming, Maranatha, which means come Lord. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Well, if you like what you hear, on Virgin Most Powerful, you can support the show by sharing the full show page at vmpr.org. You can also find us on social media at VMPR Radio and our YouTube channel called Full Sheen Ahead. <clears throat> you can share us with your friends and evangelize everyone you love, for that is the mission of the Catholic Church. Let's get on to our topics today. I want to talk about a very famous uh, Jewish convert to the Catholic faith. He was an actual Jewish atheist. His name's Alphonse de Radisbon. He lived from 1814 to 1884. I'm also going to talk about the word jolly. It's a word that's rarely used anymore, but it has, it has so many wonderful connotations, especially as associated with Christmas. So I'm going to talk about what jolly actually means exactly, because it, it means more than simply being happy. It's a profound word. That word is a treasure. It really is. And so I'll do a deep dive and explain the meaning of jolly and why it's important for us to be jolly. Not just Santa Claus should be jolly. We should be jolly. Why? Because we're Catholic Christians and we're waiting for the, the expectant hope of the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, I'm going to talk about if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have any holidays to speak of. That's the last segment. It's going to be a fascinating segment. You don't want to miss it. I'm going to talk about it in the fourth segment. If it wasn't for Jesus, life would be boring. And I'm going to show you how Jesus just enriches life and culture before we get to heaven. He makes this life, he makes life worth living because of his promises and because he gives us throughout the year these things that we call holy days, which the world calls holidays. Okay, well, let's talk about 
Alphonse, Alphonse Duratisbon, very well-known convert from Judaism, uh, from actually, he was a, 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 he was a Jewish atheist. He didn't believe in anything. And he converted through his contact with the miraculous metal. Fascinating story. One, another story of the miraculous metal bringing someone to Christ. So, he lived from 1814 to 1884. Alphonse de Radisbon was the son, and he was the inheritor of a family of Jewish bankers from Strasbourg. So he was born into wealth. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. During his childhood, his older brother, Theodore, converted to Catholicism. His older brother not only converted to Catholicism from Judaism, he even became an he became an ordained Catholic priest. Can you believe that? The Jewish family, the Radisbon family, naturally reacted with horror and hostility. Alphonse resolved to never have anything to do with his brother, with his priest brother, and furthermore, he developed a violent antipathy to the Catholic faith. Though he was an atheist, he experienced a tremendous love and a profound loyalty for his own people, the Jewish people. In fact, he devoted his efforts and money to the purpose of improving the social condition of less fortunate Jews. At the age of 27, Alphonse, again, very wealthy, came from a family of Jewish bankers. He became engaged and then noticed a subtle change concerning his religious sentiments. In his own words, he says, quote, a certain change overcame me concerning my religious ideas. I believed in nothing at first, but the sight of my fiance awoke in me a feeling about human dignity. I began to believe in the immortality of the soul. Instinctively, I began to pray to God. I even thanked him for my good fortune, but nevertheless, I remained dissatisfied, close quote. Since Alphonse Radisbon's fiance was only 16 years old at the time, it was considered appropriate to postpone the marriage. Therefore, in order, in order uh, to, while, to wait a while, Alphonse decided to take a sightseeing trip to Italy. So, this is kind of a curious challenge. After spending time in Naples, Italy, he stayed in Rome. While there, he visited Baron Theodore de Boussiers, who happened to be the brother of one of his best friends. Their conversations turned to religion. Alphonse Radisbon mocked and attacked the Catholic Church repeatedly. Finally, the Baron asked him, offered him a curious challenge. He said, Alphonse, why don't you wear this uh, miraculous medal and recite one short daily prayer? And he told him the prayer goes like this. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled, who invoked thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left forsaken. Inspired with this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do we come before thee, I stand sinful and sorrowful. O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petition. 
but in thy clemency hear me and answer me, amen, close quote. So, the youthful Alphonse Radisbon, this young Jewish wealthy guy, grudgingly accepted, for, for him it was a way of proving the inanity of these detestable superstitions within the Catholic Church. So, he prayed, he prayed that prayer and put on the miraculous medal. The youthful Jew grudgingly accepted for him, it was, again, it was, it was a way of disproving this in, insanity called Catholicism. On the 20th of January, 1842, the last day of his stay in Rome, <clears throat> Alphonse Radisbon entered by chance the church of St. Andrew of the brothers. He recounts the incident himself, St. Andrew being a Jew himself, one of the apostles. Alphonse, when he walked into St. Andrew's church, this is what he said happened. Quote, I was in the church, but in an instant, when all of a sudden I felt, I felt myself overtaken by an inexplicable anxiety. I raised my eyes and noticed that the entire edifice had disappeared from my view. A single chapel had, so to speak, concentrated all the light. And in the center of this radiation, there appeared standing on the altar, tall, brilliant, full of majesty and tenderness, the Virgin Mary. Just as she appears on my miraculous medal. And now an irresistible force pushed me towards her. The Virgin signaled to, signaled to me to kneel down and seemed to say to me, that is fine. She did not speak, but I understood everything. Close quote. At that instant, Alphonse Radisbon felt freed of his blindness, his spiritual and intellectual blindness. Here's what he said. At that moment, at the moment of the gesture, the blindfold fell from my eyes. Not only one blindfold, but the whole bundle of blindfolds that it kept me enfolded in their grasp disappeared successively and rapidly just as snow, mud, and ice disappear under the action of a brilliant and burning sun. He says, in some strange way, I felt myself to be completely naked as though I had a clean slate with no preconceived ideas. The world had become as nothing to me. The prejudices against Christianity no longer existed. My childhood prejudice evaporated. God's love had replaced my other loves. Close quote. Alphonse de Radisbon went through a Saul of Tarsus moment. Saul was blinded when he saw the risen Christ, blinded for three days. And it was something like scales that fell out of his eyes. Same thing happened to Alphonse Radisbon, another Jew, 2,000 years later. Jesus loves his people, the Old Testament people, and he keeps bringing them to a knowledge, to a knowledge of himself. We'll continue with this famous conversion story of Alphonse de Radisbon, a Jewish atheist who converted to the Catholic faith because the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him. Stick around. You'll hear more next. Now, back to Jesus 911. 
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. To Jesus through Mary, that's what happened to Alphonse Radisbon, the famous Jewish atheist, uh, over 100 years, about 150 years ago, encountered the Blessed Virgin Mary, visibly saw her standing on an altar inside of a Catholic church in Rome, and was immediately, immediately, just like St. Paul of Tarsus 2,000 years ago, where he had the scale fall off of his eyes in Acts 9.18, Alphonse Radisbon, same thing happened with him. Scales fell off of his eyes. He calls it a blindfold. Because yes, Satan has blinded the minds of, of unbelievers. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so Saul of Tarsus was blinded by Satan. Alphonse Radisbon was blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But uh, and the fact the reason is is because uh, the devil has acquired a certain domination over men because even though we remain free we have free will all of us have a wounded nature inclined to evil we call that concupiscence which gives rise to serious errors in the errors of education politics social action and morality but the truth of Jesus Christ of the risen Christ set Alphonse Radisbon free as introduced to him by the Blessed Virgin Mary. And also, the same thing happened with Saul of Tarsus. The truth of the risen Christ set him free as well. The Lord's grace can overcome our wounded nature, can overcome our concupiscence if we cooperate. And so going back to Alphonse Radisbon, this famous convert to the Catholic faith, he was an unbelieving Jew, an atheist Jew, a Jewish atheist. He says when Mary, he, he, he saw Mary standing on top of an altar, he says in the beginning he was able to clearly perceive the brilliance of that divine light coming from the Blessed Mother. He three times tried to raise his eyes to her, but in those three attempts he found himself incapable of raising his eyes higher than, than her own hands, from which graces and blessings seemed to cascade in the forms of luminous rays. And here's what he told Our Lady. He said, Oh my God, Alphonse said. He cried out only a half hour ago, I was in the act of blaspheming, and I felt a profound mortal hatred against the Catholic religion. All those who know me full well, who, 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 all those who know me full well, that humanly speaking, I nourished the strongest reasons to remain Jewish. My family's Jewish, as well as my fiance and uncle who are all Jewish. On becoming Catholic, I am sacrificing all my hopes and worldly interests, yet I'm no fool. Close quote. Just 11 days later, on January 31st, 1842, Alphonse Radisbon was baptized, confirmed, and made his first Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Shortly afterwards, having broken his engagement, he entered religious life and was ordained a priest. He spent the rest of his days working and praying for the conversion of his people. He settled in the Holy Land and with his brother Theodore, founded a religious order whose mission it was to pray for the conversion of the Jews. He had a convent built on the very site of, Pil of Pontius Pilate's uh, palace. The same spot where uh, the Roman governor showed the poor, scourged and bleeding Jesus to the crowd. I'm sure you all remember that scene from the movie of, of, the, of the Passion of the Christ. <clears throat> So the Roman governor, right there on that spot where he showed the poor 
scourged and bleeding Lord Jesus Christ to the crowd, suggesting that he be freed, and where the Jews cried, Crucify him! May his blood be upon us and our children! Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. Father Mary Alphonse de Radisbon died in the year 1844 at Ain Karem, St. John the Baptist's birthplace, which is near Jerusalem. What happened to this Jewish atheist? Mary appeared to him. He came to faith in Christ. And his faith was so strong, he actually became a Catholic priest and moved to the Holy Land and began a ministry to convert the Jews. Alphonse de Radisbon received what a lot of saints receive. It's called infused knowledge. Divine, that's, this is straight from heaven, straight from God, infused knowledge. Infused knowledge is that knowledge that's not acquired by personal effort nor by the instruction of others, but rather is produced directly in a created mind by some either angelic or divine illumination from God. Its distinguishing characteristic is its mode of acquisition and not its subject matter, which can be neither natural or supernatural truths, which can be either natural or supernatural truths. Infused knowledge should also be distinguished from co-natural knowledge, such as the angels are sometimes presumed to possess. And that infused knowledge is not necessarily or inseparably associated with the intellect endowed with it. Whatever is to be said of an angel's ability to infuse knowledge into the minds of human beings, there's no doubt that God can do so. And this is exactly what happened to Alphonse de Radisbon. He received infused knowledge and immediately he knew the gospel of Jesus Christ was true. But to what extent he actually does so is more difficult to determine. Theologians plausibly assume some infusion of knowledge is involved in the initial revelation of supernatural truths, such as that, such as that given to Adam, the patriarchs, prophets, and so on. Though scripture often describes God or his angelic messengers as speaking audibly or appearing in some physical guise to men. As it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, Genesis 18, verse 1, Genesis 22, 11, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. The Bible also mentions internal communications of God or an angel coming in a dream by night. For example, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, or in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. In such instances, God could speak internally or work directly upon the mind, as St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Even if God imparted knowledge by audible sounds, some inner illumination would be required to make the recipient certain that God himself is speaking. And this is exactly what happened to Alphonse de Radisbon, now Father Mary Alphonse de Radisbon. Um, he's the one, the, the recipient of divine grace, and God used him for a very powerful mission to convert the Old Testament people of God, the Jewish people, his, the covenant children of the First Testament. Hey, I want to move on now. I want to talk about the word jolly. We don't use it that often. And we should start using it a lot more. Jolly's it's it's a gem word. And it's it's decline in usage is, is is sad. It's a pity. Because to be jolly is a profound thing. To, to be jolly is to recognize the winsomeness and levity present in the world around us 
and to appreciate it by responding with an exuberance of joy. Being jolly in its proper time and place is an inestimable treasure. In the common parlance of of modern America, the word jolly has fallen distinctly out of use. While words like fun and happy abound in everyday conversation, jolly is in the minds of many inexorably tied to Christmas. For example, traditional carols have kept the word alive in reference to the festivities of the season. One would be hard-pressed, however, to find instances of Americans casually describing anything other than Christmas celebrations or St. Nicholas as jolly. This decline in usage, again, is sad because jolly, it's a gem word. The, the, the tragic misfortune of jolly falling by the wayside as a common adjective and my belief that it is a term of incredible beauty and rich significance that have led me to deem it worthy, uh, you know, to deem it worthy to delve into a detailed definition of this word. Absolutely. The Merriam-Webster dictionary states that the origin of jolly is probably from the Old Norse, Joel, which means midwinter festival. While the connections between this possible origin and the common Christmas-tide connotations of jolly are intriguing, the Oxford English Dictionary judges this theory of origin and says, extremely doubtful. Less murky is the word's more immediate origin, the old French, jolif, meaning festive, merry, amorous, pretty. And over time, the multiple meanings of jolif have coalesced into one English concept of jollity. Jollity. From where we get the word jolly, which certainly means neither amorous nor pretty, simply speaking. It is clear to see, however, that all these definitions of jolif have contributed to the development of the definition of jolly. To be jolly is not merely to be happy. Indeed, he who is jolly is necessarily happy, but he who is happy is not necessarily jolly. The word happiness can denote merely contentment or satisfaction, but jolity is never limited to such states of being. Jolity presupposes such happiness and builds upon it. To be jolly is to possess a joyful buoyancy of spirit, to be full of warm and energetic cheerfulness. There is, however, a misunderstanding to be avoided at all costs in in this definition. The cheerfulness that characterizes jolly is never to be confused with the cheerfulness which is bred of frivolity. The spirit of a jolly man is inimical to frivolity. To be jolly is born of an appreciation of the good things that life has given us. The recognition of the goodness of life fills a man with joy and puts him in a jolly humor. To be jolly thus presupposes an attitude of gratitude, an attitude which is essentially thoughtful and which leads a man to engage in wholesome and fruitful merriment. J.R.R. Tolkien's hobbits provide an example from fiction. Their response to the goods of everyday life, such as food, drink, and tobacco, is one of gratitude and exultation. They were jolly. A frivolous man, on the the other hand, cannot be jolly. 
A frivolous man is not thoughtful enough to have any real appreciation for the beauty and goodness around him. Rather, a frivolous man, he seeks his own gratification by whatever means he can contrive. The things of this world have no meaning except insofar as they are means to bring about his own satisfaction. His own attempts at merriment are hollow and meaningless. Hedonistic attempts to engorge him to gorge himself on as much enjoyment as he can lay hands on. Such a man's spirits are not buoyant but weightless. They don't lift him up. So the frivolous man, his happiness is not effervescent but evanescent. And with such a warped perspective on life, the frivolous man can never attain joy. That attains the reason then that he cannot attain being jolly. It's probably not a coincidence that St. Paul tells us in the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. St. Paul, to me, he seemed like he was jolly. Stick around. We'll talk more about what does it mean to be jolly. You'll hear more. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency... Dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. One man car, my name is Jesse Romero. So what is a frivolous man? A frivolous man is somebody who's characterized by like like a lack of seriousness, uh, frivolous conduct, self-indulgent, carefree, unconcerned about or lacking any serious purpose. That's a frivolous man. A frivolous man cannot be, cannot be a... Uh, what's the word we're using? Jolly. Can't be jolly. A a jolly man usually has the characteristics of somebody who's effervescent. Effervescent means somebody who's, who's bubbly, somebody who's volatile, somebody who's sparkling with life. And, And you'll find that people can't be jolly if you're evanescent. So what does evanescent means? It means somebody who's who's fading. Somebody who's short-lived. Somebody who's temporary, vanishing. That's somebody who's evanescent. You you can't be jolly if you're evanescent. You could only be jolly if you're effervescent. And you can't be jolly if you're frivolous. Again, somebody who just lacks seriousness. And the, the Bible, I mean, uh, the word jolly can be basically a synonym for, for joy. Joy. St. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. St. Paul was jolly. Without a doubt. St. Paul, uh, Nehemiah the prophet. He also wrote, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Nehemiah the prophet was also jolly like St. Nicholas. 
Because being jolly, this is something that comes from within. To be jolly is truly deep. It's a profound thing. It comes from the soul. It is to recognize the winsomeness and, the, and, and levity present in the world around us and to appreciate it by responding with an exuberance of joy. Being jolly in the proper time and its proper time and place is an inestimable treasure. As the book of Ecclesiastes declares, quote, quote, Go then and eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with gladness because thy works please God, close quote. That's in the book of Ecclesiastes. The man who is alive, the man who is, who is jolly, takes this command to heart. Realizing the goodness of God's world, he responds in jubilation. Even in the secular wasteland of modern America, where where the true meaning of the, of the holiday is widely ignored, unfortunately. The celebration of Christmas is nevertheless widespread. Why? Because the festival is kept with great fervor and gusto, even by those to whom the birth of Christ means nothing. It seems clear to me that what motivates these, these continual celebrations is the hunger for joy. Yes. The hunger for joy. This Christmas spirit is a thing of such grandeur that even those who are ignorant of its ultimate source crave it. The pure and unadulterated joy which provokes such wholesome cheerfulness is so beautiful that it cannot help but be attractive only by spurning frivolity and empty hedonism, however, and by adopting the poison of gratitude in the face of the beauty of human life can men attain true jollity, which means joy. Well, I want to move now to the power of holidays. And think about this. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we would not have any holidays to speak of. And life would be boring. <laughs> life would not be worth living. Jesus gave us the holidays. Yep. Why Jesus is God incarnate. Holidays, that word comes from the word holy days. I'm going to say it again. Holidays comes from the word holy day, which is a Catholic term, which means days that are set apart. That's what holy days means. Days that are set apart. That's what holidays means. Days that are set apart. I love holidays. Because they enrich, they bring life and joy to a nation. And for a time, we're able to forget that we're in a war. During the holiday seasons, for a time, we're able to forget about stolen elections. For a time, we're able to forget that we have the highest inflation in 40 years. 
during holidays for a time we're able to forget the rise in crime, the rise in pornography, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. Holidays temporarily overshadow these societal ills. Every holiday that makes America great comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, hel- we celebrate holidays like Christmas, which is the birth of Christ. No Christmas without Christ. We celebrate New Year's, which is dated from the birth of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't know that January 1st was New Year's Day if it wasn't for the fact that we have the birth of Christ, which we have the date of the birth of Christ, so we're able to use that as a reference point to be able to tell the world that in a few short days we'll enter January 1st, 2023 from the birth of Jesus Christ. We also celebrate Easter. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Valentine's Day, which is the martyr of a Catholic priest, the martyrdom of Father Valentine for preaching the love of Christ to young people in Rome. We celebrate St. Patrick's Day, a Catholic bishop, an exorcist, who drove off the occult from Ireland for the sake of Christ, and he brought in the kingdom of Christ into Ireland. We even celebrate Halloween, the day before All Saints Day. We know that all the saints who are now with Christ in heaven, and the next day is All Souls Day. Those those souls who are being purified by the fires of God's love, they will soon be with Christ. We celebrate Veterans Day. We honor our veterans of war, especially those who paid the ultimate price for our country. And this this, this, this paying the ultimate price, dying for somebody else, this was inspired by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price for the sins of the world on a cross. In John chapter 15, verse 13, the Bible says, No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Close quote. Even, fittingly, American military cemeteries are adorned with crosses on Veterans Day. I think I've proved my point. Everything that is worth celebrating in America comes from Jesus Christ. Not Buddha, not Confucius, or Muhammad, or Gandhi. No. They've contributed nothing to enrich America, or the human race for that matter, in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Catholics and Americans, we celebrate these Christ-inspired holy days or holidays in order to renew our joy by remembering events of the past and calling them to mind and making them metaphysically present through ritual. The Christmas season and the six other holidays that I mentioned brings joy even to non-believers. Catholics celebrate as families and we celebrate liturgically as a church through ritual. Why? Because ritual has the power to recall important events like the 4th of July for Americans with its theme of liberty and freedom that, by the way, was inspired by Christ. And the Jews celebrate the Passover with rituals. The Passover prefigures Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. You can't get away from Jesus. 
All holidays point to Jesus. You can't get away from him. Ritual has the power to help the memory preserve what is truly important. Ritual reminds us who we are and allows us to pass it from generation to generation. If you want to keep any memory alive, it has to be attached to ritual because rituals help us remember and keep our Christian morals and values. So, how did the Jews remain alive without a country from 70 AD when it was taken away from the Ro- by the Romans to 1948 when it was given back to them by the United Nations? How did the Jews remain alive without a country? It was their memory of the past that kept them alive. How do you keep your memory alive? Through ritual. This is how the Jews recalled all their sacred events. Through ritual. Catholics do likewise. The repetition and celebration, the repetition and ritual celebration is how the six holidays become burned in our soul and give us a deeper awareness and appreciation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is the origin for all holidays. We'll continue talking about holidays. My name is Jesse Romero. You'll hear more about holidays and how important it is for Catholic faith and the fact that all holidays come from Jesus Christ and no one else. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Mary Christ Mass. Yep. Mary gave us Christ who gave us the Mass. Mary Christ Mass. Mary gave us Christ who gave us the Mass. What's the truth about Santa Claus? Once upon a time, a long time ago, by journalistic standards, a little girl wrote a letter to the Sun, a New York City newspaper. Little Virginia O'Hanlon, eight years old, had a very important question to ask. Some of my friends say there's no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? The editorial response published by The Sun, written by Francis Church, begins this way. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They've been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except what they see. They think that nothing can can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect, as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. The silent actor in this drama was Virginia's father, Dr. Philip O'Hanlon, who apparently chose not to answer his daughter's question and punted it to a newspaper. We have no record of why he did so. Perhaps he did not want to be the one to dash his daughter's belief in Santa Claus and thought it better for the newspaper to tell her the bad news. Or because he was a medical doctor and therefore a scientist, 
perhaps Dr. O'Hanlon decided that Virginia was old enough to begin to seek answers to life's questions from, from the wider world beyond, and the, beyond the circle of her family. In any case, Dr. O'Hanlon's dilemma, unlike his daughter's, never received an answer. And to this day, parents wonder what to tell their children about Santa Claus. This is the question that Catholics, we receive all the time about this time of the year. Uh, here's what the Catechism says, paragraph 2485. The Catechism says that it's very clear that we shouldn't lie for any reason. Okay? Uh, it says, perhaps, the fact is, how can we justify lying to children about Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy by telling kids they are real when we know they aren't? Perhaps you've noticed from this question that it's now, it is now the parents, not the children, who are the victims of what Francis Church called the skepticism of a skeptical age. Staring at black and white, they see no gray. Something is either factually true or, is it, or it is a deception. Frankly, this is an impoverished understanding of the nature of language, of thought, and of truth. So let's backtrack and look at some history. The stories commonly told about Santa Claus are based on legends surrounding the life of a real person. St. Nicholas of Myra was a 4th century Catholic bishop in Turkey. He participated in the First Council of Nicaea, where he famously purported to have slugged the heretic Arius for denying Christ's divinity and has been considered a patron of children for his generosity to them during his lifetime. For example, he is said to have provided dowries for three girls who would have been sold into slavery if they could not make good marriages. Over the centuries, the legends of St. Nicholas' life have been supplemented with northern European myths, eventually culminating in the children's story, a visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Moore, which imagines St. Nicholas as a right jolly old elf traveling the world on Christmas Eve in a sleigh pulled by a reindeer, distributing gifts to children. It's worth considering that the name Santa Claus is not merely an imaginary moniker arbitrarily affixed to a jolly elf wearing red. The name, in his, the name is an Americanization of the Dutch, of the Dutch Sinterklaas, which translates to Saint Nicholas. The parental dilemma arises when children find out that, that their parents are the ones who are providing the Christmas gifts. Easter candy and tooth money in my experience, parents tend to worry too much about how their children will receive this news. Many children, though many generations, simply accept this information as a part of growing up. And in fact, some will collude with parents to keep the myth going by not letting their parents in on the fact that they know the truth about Santa Claus. One reason may be to continue getting loot, but another reason may be to avoid spoiling their parents or younger siblings' fun. There may be children, though, who are sensitive to issues of truth versus lying and who may sincerely wonder if their parents have lied to them about Santa Claus. One way to answer this concern might be to explain the context of storytelling and myth-making, perhaps pointing out to the child that let's pretend is a game for people of all ages. But is it lying to allow children to believe a myth? In my opinion, that is a misunderstanding of the nature of myth-making. Cultures create and foster myths 
as a means of understanding the world around them. In the absence of science, the ancients needed ways to explain the natural phenomena, such as the movements of the sun, that they could not examine directly. Modern people tend to smile with condescension at the thought of the ancient Greeks believing that the god Helios drove his golden chariot across the sky every day. They do not consider that perhaps the ancients knew as well as well as they do that this is not factually true, but is merely a story that taught an important truth. There are reasons why we have periods of light and darkness, even if ancient Greeks could not yet explain those reasons scientifically. We may now have ways to scientifically explain natural phenomena, but we have not lost the need for story or for myth. And the ones who sometimes learn best through stories are children. So what can children learn about their world through belief in Santa Claus? Well, for one thing, they can learn that good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior is punished. Not just because their parents say so, but because there's something larger than their parents that requires us to act rightly. The other day while my sister was driving with her children, another driver blew through a red light. My older niece, age 10, wanted to report the man to the police. My younger niece, age 10, uh, my younger niece, age 4, agreed with the idea but offered an additional suggestion. Quote, and Santa Claus too, he'll put the man on the bad list, close quote. Children can also learn from Santa Claus legend that we are part of a larger universe and that we are watched over and cared for by good spirits whom we cannot yet know empirically. This can be considered groundwork for introduction to the communion of saints. And because Santa Claus is based on a real person, they need never stop believing in him. They need only mature in understanding of how Santa Claus or St. Nicholas answers their requests. So, does this mean that Catholic parents must allow their children to believe in Santa Claus? Of course not. If a parent does not feel comfortable taking this approach to Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Truth Fairy, the parent is free to leave out such stories from his child's formation. I do think that Catholic parents should teach their children not to spoil the innocent fun of other children by telling those children that such characters are not real. Virginia O'Hanlon eventually did learn the truth about Santa Claus, of course. How does she turn out once she discovered the truth? She grew up to be an educator. Throughout her life, O'Hanlon continued to foster belief in Santa Claus by sending copies of Francis Church's editorial to the admirers who sent her letters. And according to Wikipedia, O'Hanlon is credited the editorial with shaping the direction of her life quite positively. No Santa Claus. Thank God he lives. And he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten, ten times ten thousand years from now, Santa Claus will continue to make glad the heart of a child and the heart of childhood. Christmas. Even in the secular wasteland of modern America, where the true meaning of the Christmas holiday is widely ignored, the celebration of Christmas is nevertheless widespread, even amongst the secularist. The festival is kept with great fervor and gusto, even by those to whom the birth of Christ means nothing. 
it seems clear to me that what motivates these continual celebrations is the hunger for truth and the hunger for joy. Faith grows when it is well expressed in celebration. Good celebration fosters, good celebrations foster and nourish faith. Poor celebrations weaken and destroy faith. G.K. Chesterton once said, rituals are simple ways of, expre- of expressing complex ideas. All of life from sunrise to sunset is ritual. I hope you ha- you're having a happy, holy, blessed Advent as we await Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13. As we await the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 13. You know, with each passing year, it seems that I develop an even greater understanding of my, of my own brokenness and therefore my desperate need for the Christ child. What a gift Jesus is. He's everything. He's my everything. My prayer is that you are overwhelmed this Christmas season, that you're overwhelmed to tears this season of this gift. And may his life within you bring you greater healing, freedom, and holiness. Yes, Mary, M-A-R-Y, Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, Mass, M-A-S-S. Mary gave us Christ who gave us the Mass. Well, that's a wrap, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been listening to Jesus 911. Up next, Gary Machuda, hands-on apologetics, coming to you from the Midwest Command Center, the big guy. And as for us, I want to remind you, we must know our Catholic faith, live our Catholic faith, and spread our Catholic faith. And let's remember the, the royal praise. It's called the Laudes Regei, the royal praise throughout history, which is Christus Vincit, Christus Reinat, Christus Imperat, which means Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. This is an acclamation which asserts Christ as King of Kings. And it pulls no punches. And so we say this boldly. And we say this with faith, hope, and love. Hey, church, we're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. St. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you next time. Make sure that before you die, you leave it all out on the field for Jesus.